You're listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, thank you, Giselle, for a mighty uh, stick-together show. She's joined the team. It's fabulous. Uh, today, we're going to hear a voice from... Uh, uh, an anti-Zionist Jewish trans author who spoke at the Melbourne rally last week and remind you that the rally will be again on the steps of uh, the State Library at 12 noon as uh, Israeli's army attacks Gaza once again. Uh, the horror continues. Uh, we talked to Alex Etling uh, about, he's the co-author of Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Alcohol in Australia. There's going to be a launch next Saturday at 4pm at the Curtin Hotel, uh, but we have a, a little chat with Alex beforehand. Um, Ian Critterton and uh, Rachel Zip are coming in. They're going to talk to us about this fantastic little series called Plausible Reliability, which is all about homelessness, but uh, it's a, a different angle on it and it's uh, available online. It's a series, one issue, six leaders, three children, no bullshit. It's a fabulous Australian production and as I said, it's online. You can access it, but we're going to find out more about it at around eight. Um, this is the week that was, and Don Sutherland's going to join us uh, about Bowen's um, announcement uh, around um, uh, how he's going to fix everything up, how he's going to fix everything up. But before we do, um, uh, because uh, Bowen's gone off to the COP22 28, sorry, <laughs> that was a Freudian, wasn't it? Uh, COP28, and I thought I'd start the program with a little um, taster of a response to what's going on in um, Dubai. It was written in no on November the 30th by Andrew Shacklin. He's from Human Rights Watch. Long-awaited and long-windedly named the 28th Conference of State Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change begins today in Dubai. Better known as COP28, the conference has attracted much international media attention in recent months, given the curiosity and hypocrisy of it being hosted in the United Arab Emirate, the UAE. The country is one of the world's largest 
oil producers and among the highest per capita emitters of greenhouse gases, the key driver of the climate crisis. What's perhaps most needed from the 13-day gathering is an official recognition of the necessity of phasing out all fossil fuel in terms used by people who spend a lot of time in negotiating at international conferences like this, there should be, in inverted commas, explicit reference, end of inverted commas, to this core point in COP28's outcome document. The prospect of a climate conference hosted by the UAE delivering that most needed outcome is, let's say, not encouraging, particularly given recent news. Earlier this year, we saw the UAE's announcement it was expanding all aspects of its fossil fuel operations. And just days ago, there were fresh revelations the UAE planned to use its role as the host of the UN climate talks as an opportunity to strike new oil and gas deals with other countries. It also certainly doesn't help that those pushing for climate action are hindered by long-running policies in the UAE severely restricting freedom of speech, freedom of assembly and freedom of association. Well, we'll see what the next two weeks bring in Dubai, he says, but looking ahead, the UN really needs to change how these conferences are planned. They should develop criteria for future COP hosts to ensure civil society can speak out without fear of reprisals. Yes, it would seem like the sort of thing that should happen. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And as you're aware, the uh, rallies at the Step of the State Library uh, in Melbourne have been continuing since uh, the attack on Gaza. Um, there's uh, going to be one again, as the announcement said, tomorrow. Um, but afterwards, you might like to go to the Cross Street Music Hall in Brunswick. That's 1622 Cross Street, Brunswick, at 4pm for a benefit to raise uh, money for the hospitals in Gaza. Uh, the uh, tickets are 25 and concession 15 children-free refreshments available. Guest speakers uh, include Meribek councillor Sue Bolton. Uh, it's to fundraise uh, for the Doctors Without Borders 
um, and uh, the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Um, that's uh, 3rd of December, Sunday, 4pm, uh, Cross Street Music Hall, 16 to 22 Cross Street, Brunswick. Um, on last week's, uh, at last week's uh, rally, um, the anti-Zionist Jewish trans author Nevo Zissen had a, gave a, a very powerful speech around the issues that have been calling people to these rallies every week since December, uh, October the tenth, October the seventh. From the river to the sea. Ashkenazi Jewish settler colonizer on violently stolen Wurundjeri Wodadong land. I want to recognize the violence we are seeing now is the violence it takes to tear an indigenous people from their country. And I want to recognize the history of this very same violence here. I honor and pay respects to elders past and present and all First Nations people. I also hold a legacy of settler colonialism on Palestinian land. And to this and the ways I am a beneficiary of violence on multiple continents, I am accountable. While I have the mic, I also want to mention an initiative called Defect for Palestine, which is connecting McDonald's and Starbucks workers who support the boycott with new jobs. So if you're a business with a spare job or you're a worker at Macca's or Starbucks who wants to leave, go to defectforpalestine.com to register and there will be flyers passed out out the front of those businesses as well. On every front line, there are queer and trans people who know what it means to be witness to our own suffering and the ways this opens our hearts to witness others, who know what it takes to fight for liberation at any cost. 
As a Jewish, queer, and transgender person, I have received more vitriolic, queerphobic abuse in the last almost two months for speaking out for a free Palestine than I have in my entire career as a transgender educator. There is no transgender liberation, no gender euphoria, no gender affirmation truly and deeply possible without the abolition of nation states, police and prisons. Without indigenous sovereignty, land back and First Nations leadership and healing. Queer Palestinians exist and they are losing their lives, their families, their ambitions and their futures. I want to prioritise their voices and share some stories throughout my speech. These were anonymously shared on a website called Queering the Map. Quote, I don't know how long I will live, so I just want this to be my memory here before I die. I am not going to leave my home, come what may. My biggest regret is not kissing this one guy. He died two days back. We had told each other how much we like each other and I was too shy to kiss him last time. He died in the bombing. I think a big part of me died too. And soon I will be dead. To Yunus, I will kiss you in heaven. Quote. A militarized nation state can never be a liberatory place for LGBTIQA people. I resent that there is a huge pride parade on stolen lands a few hours away from an open air concentration camp. Shame. That does not make me feel proud. I'm not fighting for Israel to ask people's pronouns before carpet bombing their entire neighborhoods. When I am told to go to Gaza and see how safe it is for me as a trans person, they are right that I would likely be killed immediately, but it would be at the hands of Israel's incessant and indiscriminate bombing and attacks. I recently saw a post of an IOF soldier holding a rainbow flag with a Star of David standing on the rubble of a destroyed neighborhood in Gaza and I have never felt more ashamed or disgusted in that moment to be Jewish or to be queer. But I will not let my identities be co-opted. I say... How dare you fly this flag on the grounds of massacred children? How dare you paint the land pink with the blood of martyred innocent people? This is not my Judaism and this is not my queerness. Quote, during the Palestinian Nakba, my grandparents were forced out of their land to Lebanon. Later on, my family immigrated to France during the Lebanese Civil War. The only thing my grandpa got from the house before fleeing was the key and a picture of him and grandma in front of their house. He would always talk about Jaffa oranges, his house and the Mediterranean Sea. 
I grew up wanting to know who I am, where I'm originally from, so in 2017 I decided to search for my grandparents' original house in Old Jaffa. Long story short, with the help of Palestinians living there, we found the stairs that used to lead to my grandfather's house. We found the house. We found the lighted window, which was once a kitchen window. As a queer Palestinian, the only time I felt angry and broken about seeing a pride flag was when I saw it flying on my grandparents' house on my stolen land. Shame. To finish, I want to share an excerpt from My Jiddo Fled Palestinian Genocide So I Could Be Free by Leila Lak Makled, published by Autostraddle and read with permission. Quote, On Trans Day of Visibility this past year, I posted a photo of me after top surgery talking about what it means to be trans. This is what My Jiddo said. We see you and love you as you are. My Jiddo fled genocide by Israel in 1948, and I get to be free as a transgender person with access to things like gender-affirming care and community in 2023. My Jiddo always tells me he is proud of me for just being me, and I truly believe him when he says that. He has endured so much, and to see his grandchild live in such a loving and fulfilling way is a dream come true for him. A few months ago, when I asked my Jiddo if he considered me a Palestinian, he said, nothing would honor me more. That is why I'm sharing this story. I carry my Palestinian elders and ancestors in my heart and body everywhere I go. It is not a separate part of me, it is me. It is part of where I come from. I come from the land and people of Palestine. I am a transgender Palestinian. A free Palestine means a freer world. Wall-shattering resistance from Palestinians is a direct result of 70-plus years of colonization, land theft, occupation, and apartheid. It is the result of traumatized, imprisoned, and oppressed people fighting back. Regardless of what's in the news, my Jiddo, now nearly 85 years old, still gets night terrors. I hold all oppressed people fighting for liberation in my heart. Black liberation, sex worker liberation, indigenous sovereignty, transgender liberation, Palestinian liberation, it is all intertwined as we aim to decolonize and return home. I read, I read this piece to my Jiddo before publishing and asked if there's anything he wanted me to add. With a glimmer of hope in his eyes, this is what he said. We Palestinians are not going away. We are in this world to stay, and the world is going to have to deal with us. Quote. We are here, we are queer, and we will not stop fighting for liberation from all oppressive systems and for a free Palestine. May Palestine free us all. From the river to the sea, always was, always will be. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. 
You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and that was anti-Zionist Jewish trans author Ziva Zissin. He was uh, he she them were talking at the uh, uh, rally last uh, week Saturday. Palestine uh, steps of St- State Library. It's going to re- be there tomorrow at twelve because the horror continues. We're going to now turn to something that is uh, perhaps a, a little bit less. Uh, disturbing uh, at the moment because it's a history. <laughs> uh, Alex Edling, he's the co-author of uh, Knocking the Top Off, a people's history of alcohol in Australia. They're going to have a launch in Melbourne. They've been all over the country launching, but they're going to launch on uh, Saturday at 4pm at uh, La, uh, next week, next Saturday, at uh, John Curtin Hotel. And I caught up with Alex to uh, on his busy schedule of launching. So you've had a, 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 a giddy round of launches for your knocking the top off uh, a people's history of alcohol. It has been quite exciting for you, hasn't it? It has. We have gone all over the country. We started off in Brisbane and, um, you know, that was a personal thrill for me because I love um, the saints and I love the go-betweens and we found all sorts of ways to talk about the Brisbane punk scene and the way that uh, connected with with politics in in Australia. They sort of had these curious connections through uh, the singer of the saints, Chris Bailey, his sister Margaret, who had been um, expelled from every school in Brisbane over a miniskirt. And uh, she ended up, um, you know, support, I think it was quite influential on her younger brother to be a bit um, anti-establishment and to sort of help them get gigs. And invariably, they ended up having their own um, their own venue in a share house, which they dubbed Club 76. And um, that was an example of an informal venue. But, um, you know, we were looking at all sorts of different angles from those, that, that sort of informal drinking to the, the place of, pubs in our lives and um so from brisbane we went all the way to broken hill don't ask me how that makes sense to be on the journey but and then to uh canberra and uh sydney melbourne hobart next year so it's all happening yeah yeah it's very exciting and you bring up um that site of um informal drinking in brisbane uh this book is really quite fascinating because it uh, goes through a whole range of different um, interesting elements to the Australian history and people's connection to alcohol, but in a um, in a academic sense, you take a particular point of view, don't you? There, there's a strategy in this. Well, I think we, more than anything, we wanted to take the moralism out of it. Of course, it's a highly moral question. The history of alcohol in Australia is all about people's attitudes to um, these questions, not just these questions, but you could, if, you were, if we were to do a book about sex or, or other sort of, you know, questions like this, of course you have to tussle with that. But, um, you know, I think in a way that sort of thing's obscured um, talking about I'm kind of surprised that people haven't written about that much about this topic before, given that I think we all kind of feel like alcohol is such a big part of all our lives. Even if you don't drink, it's a part of your life because it's hard to escape. So we wanted to sort of, we didn't want to write a sermon about 
you know, um, that drinking is bad or on the other side that you can party your way to revolution. We sort of wanted to, um, yeah, just sort of, you know, get a whole bunch of contributors together and say, well, let's look at it from different angles. And it is um, a complicated, vexed question because um, often the most useful aspects of um, alcohol as a socialiser or something that makes you feel good, that can bring people together, can also tear people apart, can make you feel awful, can, you know, really run things off the rails. So um, I think, you know, we all kind of know that, but actually having, you know, a bunch of historians go away and research um a whole bunch of topics from, you know, right from invasion to the early colonial days to the story we had last year when the um, the anti-fascist bartender spat in the beer at the Irish pub. You know, we've covered 200-plus years of stories and tried to really give a rounded, varied picture of how alcohol fits into social our social lives, our economic lives as well, for that matter. Well, it's um, it's it's like those grain, groundbreaking um, studies that say took a commodity like coal or um, or s- a- a- any commodity, and then explored the social and economic realities that are connected to it. But you've also done something else. You've decided to do it from the point of view of the working class and those who um, and that, of course, then brings in class struggle, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there is that, um, you know, we called it a people's history. I guess maybe um, we could have called it a radical history. But, I, you know, there's a great tradition of, of that term, people's history. You know, people would know Howard's in his classic book about American um, history that went through that, that lens. And, you know, there's kind of enough books written about kings and queens and prime ministers and lawyers, you know, often when, often when we win something progressive, there'll be a lawyer quick to take credit. But we know very well, listeners to this program, that it is ordinary people and uh, people power uh, organising that get these things. And they're often not the people who have their stories told. So, yeah, it's very much the, the framework. And um, the way that I like to explain the idea of people's history is that it's sort of the window that you choose to look out of of a building. So I, I imagine a, a pub and um, you could imagine, you know, just where in Melbourne you can, um, you know, take, um, take uh, you know, on the corner of, um, of uh, Flinders Street and uh, Swanson Street, Young and Jackson, you know, the, this grand pub. If you looked out the nicest window, what do you see? You see beautiful church and you see everything, you know, well manicured and you see the best of everything. But what happens if you choose to look out of a different window? You look out the back window into the alleyway and you see the people, the workers rolling in the kegs and you you might see in a previous hundred years ago or whatever, you might have seen um, sex workers plying their trade or SP bookies or homeless people or you see the more uh, a more rounded picture of life, the people that are marginalised, the people who actually do the work. So, yeah, that's our approach to history with this book. Um, I'm sure that, you know, John Elliott and these big um, barons of the brewery industry or people who own a lot of pubs, they 
often have their stories told and um, here's a chance for us to tell the stories of of the barmaids who, you know, fought for better working conditions and, you know, were chasing scabs out of those pubs in Broken Hill when we were there. I very much enjoyed telling that story, um, pouring pepper onto the the meals of of scabs who are breaking their picket line. So, um, yeah, we've uncovered all sorts of things like that. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, in fact, this book is uh, full of absolutely astounding little-known facts. One of them that just took my breath away was uh, that Joseph Stalin was on the front of the Women's Weekly. Yeah, I mean, we did cover quite a bit about the early Communist Party. I mean, I suppose it's a um, it's a period of promise. It doesn't really matter in some senses, um, what what happened to the Communist Party. But when you think about all those early people who, you know, they'd seen what had happened in Russia, they saw the, you know, workers' power there. And, um, yeah, there was... um, uh, I was particularly interested in the Bohemian Connections because then, as now, you know, a lot of people who are interested in arts and who are sort of forward-thinking in music and film and art they take an interest in um, social equality and um, so no surprise that in Melbourne as well, people would meet at the, um, often the sort of Italian continental sort of styled cafe bistros and this is when, you know, it was almost illegal to get a wine, you know, they'd have to have um, vases on the table so in case the licensing inspector came, they could tip the wine in. But those early reds, reds and radicals would would um, rub shoulders there. And I think that, you know, it's hard to actually evaluate poor decisions that were made, but clearly they were talking and, and reimagining a better world. So um, we we went, we sort of used that story to also then get into the nitty-gritty of, well, what happened to the Communist Party? And you get all the... And, you know, we looked at people like Noel Cunahan, the artist who did some really heroic things like the you know being in the free speech cage up in Brunswick and he used to go around um go around Australia with Judah Watton cartooning people and he'd meet people in the pubs and sort of pay his way through that um you know he was someone who was yeah as a Stalinist and um but you know started off in a very different sort of journey so um you get all the way up to that Curious point during Second World War when Joseph Stalin is um, on the cover of Women's Weekly because he was an ally of the Australian government. So, you know, the communists were sort of at times quite accepted, but at times, um, you know, the worst enemies in Australia, hounded by ASIO, and also at times just sort of these eccentric bohemians that you'd see sort of in line with the modernist artists. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I thought it was fascinating the picture of William Lane as well. He, he was a fairly unattractive character, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, very popular, which is um, quite astounding for us, given that the book is about alcohol. But of course, he wanted to talk about people who did not like alcohol at all. So William Lane fits into that picture. He wanted to, you know, he didn't like capitalism, but he... Um, basically, he didn't want to have a revolution. He didn't want to bother with all that. He wanted to just set up a new society from scratch in the society we live in today. Now, a lot of people have uh, tried communes and there's a lot of debate about whether this is possible. 
his approach was to actually um, get a, a massive sailing ship, fill the sailing ship, try to entice people to come, go all the way to South America and form a new society there on, um, you know, a sort of new socialist-ish society. And uh, they called it New Australia and uh, New Australia in Paraguay, of all places. And, um, you know, we like to think that um, socialism will be about equality and um, freedom of choice and <laughs> sort of these sorts of things. But there were two two main rules which really um, got in the way of William Lane's designs, and that was William Lane did not want alcohol at all, so there was a ban on alcohol, and he was absolutely racist to the core. He did not want people um, fraternising with the locals. So um, inevitably, um, this experiment collapsed very quickly because people did want to drink and they did want to, um, yeah, go across the colour boundaries and talk to the people who were their neighbours. So, um, yeah, you know, we take a very... Um, where we, we examine the people within the left and different projects because it wasn't all rosy. And, um, you know, certainly there's a... There's some utopian projects in there for uh, better or worse. And, um, yeah, I guess our approach is, like, let's look at everything. Let's throw it all on the table. And maybe out of that we'll sort of see, well, where do we want to go from here as well? What are the what are the projects and the strategies which have really worked for us? And we've used sort of stories around alcohol to do that. But, um, yeah, also just to... Um, um, yeah, have a, a rolling good read through Australian history, really. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, it. Uh... You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, you can hear the full interview that I did with Alex on the podcast. Now available at 3CR is Knocking the Top Off, A People's History of Australia. It's edited by Ian McIntyre and Alex Ettling and they're going to have a launch in Melbourne on uh, next Saturday at 4pm at John Curtin Hotel. And as Alex said, because uh, I pointed out, it was a very odd thing that John Curtin, uh, during the Second World War, being an alcoholic, should have been in charge of curtailing people's uh, uh, alcohol intake and uh, reducing pub hours. And he said... That, uh, and this is what you should listen for. He actually said that it's one of those Melbourne jokes that uh, there should be the Harold Holt Pool located right beside the John Curtin Hotel in Ligon Street. But um, that's just for people who live in Melbourne. And uh, today we're now moving on to live guests. Oh, my God. What are we going to do at Solidarity Breakfast? We've got live guests. And it's about... A fantastic thing, plausible deniability. G'day, Ian Crittenden. Hey, Annie, how are you? Good, and you are responsible or partially responsible. And the other person in the studio is Rachel Gazup. 
Hi, how are you going? <laughs> I didn't say that right, did I? <laughs> no, but no one does. So it's completely <laughs> fine. <laughs> uh, but you're also responsible with the whole t- team of people around a, a six-part series is it six? There's now seven. We released yeah. the last one last night. So there's sort of six episodes and then this bonus episode, which is the documentary that the kids have made. Yeah, this is fantastic. And it's all about homelessness, but it's a very curved ball, isn't it? Tell us all about it. Uh, yeah, look, it is. It was one of those things that it was something, an issue that I'd been aware of for a long, long time. And a few years back, I'd written a half hour pilot um, called Vicious Cycle about two brothers, a brother and sister who are living on and off the streets of Melbourne. And they'd come in contact with this homelessness task force with a dysfunctional politician and a, a socialite. And it was something that had stuck in the back of my mind. And then two years ago, I worked on a short form series out of Sydney called It's Fine, I'm Fine um, with the director, Steph Smith, which was about a it was sort of a suburban psychologist. And she was had 12 patients and each episode was a different story. And so there was something about that construct that sort of stuck with me. So when I was looking for something to write and I knew that Screen Australia had sort of funding available, a sort of talent escalation, um, the issue of homelessness was something that sort of popped its head up and it was sort of how do you put a spin on it that is slightly different it's very easy to go down the sort of the dark and gloomy or the the emotive sort of space but how could you use comedy to sort of bring people to an issue so that the comedy lures them in and they have a laugh and while they're having a laugh they're sort of gently debunking some of those myths and stereotypes it's almost very um it's like uh, indigenous uh, humor very dark humor around very dark subjects but making belly laughs it is, yeah, and that's the challenge, I think, with some of the writing was how do you actually make people laugh out loud so that it's not this sort of uh, a wry comedy where you just sort of smile. It's something that you can laugh quite loudly at an issue that's really serious. And it was something that came through when I started talking with Rachel and some of the other story consultants that even through the darkness of the issue, there's always humour, there's always heart and humour and pathos there. And I think comedy is a way that a lot of people deal with you know, really serious situations. It's like uh, music, uh, it's very human. Yeah, it is. And I think there's, even in the way that it's written, there's a rhythm to some of those speeches and to some of those characters. And I think that's why some of the the people that come in to be interviewed are quite recognisable because they're not archetypes, but they're sort of, they've got that rhythm to the way they sort of talk, particularly people like politicians or, uh, you know, a priest or... Yeah, well, you've got, um, in fact, I, I wrote them down, you've got a footballer, social entrepreneur, politician, influencer, pop star and archbishop. How did you get involved in this, Rachel? Um, well, thankfully, Ian reached out to me after reading um, one of my articles that was published in a book on homelessness. And it's something I've wanted to do for ages, dip my sort of toes into like screen film writing. And so I think it was really lovely that this was the thing that I got to play around with. And so when he reached out to me, I was like, yes, this sounds amazing. And I'm not a very funny person myself. I don't watch a lot of comedy. So I was also really intrigued by the slant of the dark comedy and I think it worked so well because even when I was watching the end product I was laughing and cringing and it even made me think about certain things that had annoyed me about homelessness but in like a new way because of the way that well it's not so much the homelessness it's actually as the kids because because let's Ian let's talk about the setup how the setup works yeah, so essentially you've got three primary school aid kids from the western suburbs and their teacher and they're doing a class project on homelessness so they decide that they'll make a little documentary and they'll invite six thought leaders into their school and they'll interview a different thought leader each day about the issue and their sort of approach to homelessness and things that they might have done to help or things that they haven't done to help. Um, and the sort of the unseen bit is that the kids have had a video that's gone viral. It might have been a TikTok video or something. So they've got a little bit of buzz about them. So suddenly these people who ordinarily wouldn't want to come in and talk to three kids about a serious issue are, are thinking, 
thinking, well, what's in it for them? So they're happy to come to the school and have a chat. Um, and then sort of over the 10 minutes that each episode sort of unfolds, you sort of get a sense of what the kids are asking them, that then the ulterior motive behind, which is where the comedy is. You've got these adults that are here trying to put one over the kids, but the kids are sort of debunking everything that the, ki- uh, the adults are trying to say. Yeah, yeah. So, Rachel, why, what, did you, what was the tone of your article? Um, it was well. I've done many articles actually on homelessness. Talking. I, I, have you been homeless? Yes, I have been homeless. I was homeless when I was seventeen. So I've written quite a lot about my own personal experiences, and um, from really emotive pieces to really factual, serious pieces. And something that kept on coming up, like over and over, was that people were putting stories into my mouth saying things like, oh, so, you know, when he slept rough, it's like, well, I never slept rough. So again, being able to see the kids debunk those myths to the people that I had to debunk the myths to was really, really good. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's almost like, uh, what do the people call it? Um, uh, what is it? Uh, poverty porn or something yes. like that, you know, yeah. where they want the grit and the blood as opposed exactly. to the slow destruction of a person's sense of stability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very it deep for head. a Saturday morning, Annie, but yes. <laughs> yeah, well, that's about it, really. I mean, I remember seeing this fantastic film about uh, a, a older uh, women being homeless and uh, a woman who uh, has written this best-selling book, and she said, I would never have written this book if I didn't have anywhere to live now. Yeah. <laughs> so true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of the story consultants we worked with, Moria, she was she became homeless when she was in her fifties, and it was a typical story of sort of an older woman who was fleeing domestic violence, and the husband cut off the money, so she had nowhere to go, so she moved from Canberra down to Melbourne. But one of the things, and she did, went through all the full spectrums, I guess, of what we perceive as being homeless in terms of sleeping rough, and then in shelters and refuges and so forth. But she just had this incredible sense of humour and this spirit that she could laugh now at the things that she'd done. But she said the same thing. It wasn't until she had secure housing that she could actually start to do the work on herself that meant she could sort of move forward yeah um but she loved the fact with this show she loved that it was a dark satire and she said you really need to punch people in the face with the issue and make them sort of sit up and take notice um and she said she uh, a likened satire to like a heavy meal she said it's something you need to sit with for a while and you'll sort of slowly sort of think about it and um yeah i think that's what we tried to do is balance those laughs with something a little bit more deep and, and meaningful well the kids um that are in this uh, they are just gems they are so relaxed and I mean, on on the level of the uh, scripting, having them as coming back, to, but there's a hundred over a hundred thousand people who are homeless in Australia. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, not only that, they you know they present in a way that's so relaxed. How did you get them to be so uh, perform so well? Yeah, we, I think part of it was luck. We worked with our Mulliners, who are this amazing casting agency out of Sydney, and Anne cast the net far and wide because we said, look, it's set in the western suburbs. We want some sort of genuine diversity and different backgrounds and lived experiences in the room. Um, and so they put forward a lot of kids, and we sort of did some auditions with Victoria, who was one of the directors, and sort of whittled it down to these three. And there was just something intrinsically magical about the way they presented themselves um, that sort of came to life on the screen. And then it was a matter of instead of just having a really short rehearsal period, we sort of staggered it over four weekends and we had to do a half a day each weekend. So they got to work through the scripts and they got to work with the other actors. But they were just amazing little humans in that they went off and did their own research and they'd found out about the issues and they were sort of telling me stuff. So they were they approached it far more seriously than a lot of adult actors, to be honest. They didn't want to do the they didn't want to do a disservice to the people, I guess, that they were representing. But some of the things that came through from talking to Rachel and the others was that kids grow up much quicker when they're in that sort of environment. So 
on the outside, these kids look like they're very, they know a lot, but they're, they're juggling so many things in the background. So one of the things we spent a lot of time doing with Rachel and the others was looking at the backstories of the kids. And that can't all come through because we've only got 10 minute episodes, but there's these huge stories behind each of the kids and to why they are and why they're acting the way they are. And so the kids took that on board and they had that in the back of their minds when they're acting the way that they were. But yeah, they just had a real level head and a sense of playfulness about it as well. Um, and I think kids have this innate ability to cut through the bullshit as well that they don't if a politician won't give them an answer they'll keep asking it a different way they don't get that they're being spun to they're just seeing an adult that's sort of not answering what they want to know so there's a lot of fun I think in playing that 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 relationship between these kids that just want a straight answer and these adults that will do anything in their power to avoid giving them one mm. uh, Rachel uh, it must have been a bit of deja vu for you watching some of these things because uh, you've had you're in you're in a particular position, and then you've got someone who's transu- transducing your uh, story into a media shape. Uh, so you're you the person who's experiencing this are, are being put on the outside. Yes, that's a very good point because um, the children that are um, in the in the web series they're a lot younger than I was. Um, my brother was fifteen, yet. We we're having exactly the same conversations because the conversations and the questions that you're asked on a daily basis, um, you know, like, why are you homeless? Like, what did you do? Yeah, um, what did you do? Yeah, which is always the main point is like, what did you do? Even at 17 and 15, it was our fault somehow that we didn't have a safe home uh, to be in, that we had done something. Um, and so I think it was really interesting, like you said, being on the outside, watching the amazing children, uh, you know, fight back to the politicians, the influencers, and seeing again, like the influencers, the business people saying exactly the same things that were said to me. I think it was done so well, because like I said, I was laughing, I was cringing, I was getting angry. So I think it nailed all of the spots. And I think a lot of people who have experienced homelessness or needed to access any services, um, you know, have had any hardship will be able to relate to this series because it is horrible to be sitting there and someone asking you questions and you telling your truth and then seeing them spin your truth and like nodding and writing things on pieces of paper and you know you're trying to be like is that what you wanted or they would say things back to me do you want to say that again I was like say what again and why I can't even remember what I said like you've asked me so many questions and I think the kids were a lot stronger than I was in that situation and again it was really lovely to see them so empowered yeah it's uh, one of the reasons for why doing a series like this is so important uh, I was really impressed with your ability to wrangle all the phraseology I I, I sit there trying to uh, remember the mad words people use to describe something that's so practical, you just need to make more homes. Yeah, it's an argument that no one really has an answer for. It's quite... And that's what's frustrating, I guess, as a as a content creator, I suppose, is that on face value, it's an issue that we should be able to fix. Like, we're a, a well-progressed we country. We've got money. We're And other countries like Finland have fixed it. But for whatever reason, and a lot of it's this entrenched attitudes, I guess, unfortunately. It's those myths and stereotypes about homelessness, about people bringing it on themselves or all being junkies or, or that type of thing. And that's some of the commentary. You'll see that play out in some of the, the comments on Facebook as we release the episodes. The, some of the, the derogatory comments that people make online that are so ignorant, and they haven't even watched the show. They're just, they've got these ingrained stereotypes about homelessness and how it's their fault. So, yeah, it's frustrating on lots of levels. Yeah, well, that's amazing, isn't it? People... <laughs> It's that thing about uh, if someone's in work, uh, they're only uh, one month away if they lose their job from being 
<laughs> I know, it's crazy. Yeah. It's so bizarre. How do people get to see this? It's on Facebook at the moment. So there's a Facebook page, um, Plausible Deniability TV. Um, and the first, all the seven episodes are out there now. So there's sort of six episodes. And then the seventh is this bonus episode with the kids documentary. Thanks for coming in and talking to us about it. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you. A weak solidarity Bricky team listener when as the so-called humanitarian break in slaughter allows a small breather from the slaughter in Gaza, one of the most evil of the most evil died in the US of, the US of the patron of the evil slaughter. Henry Kissinger, Nobel Peace Laureate, warmonger responsible for the slaughter of millions. I don't think that's an exaggeration across almost all corners of the globe, particularly Asia and South and Latin America. And I say small breather from the slaughter because the daily murder and destruction by Zion trained killers continues in the West Bank. Now, a week when under attack from the caring business class, hayseed and sheepshit coalition, the government continues to prove it can be just as cruel and inhumane as it struggles to word legislation guaranteeing the desperate seeking asylum can enjoy that asylum in a prison cell for the rest of their lives. Showing the caring business class lot don't have to be in government to pull the strings on policy. As the socialists show their renowned courage under fire, attempting to find wording that can lock people up for life while not contravening their honours ruling that they can't lock people up for life. Locking up for life people seeking asylum from persecution, many fleeing our illegal invasions as a lackey of the US, of the UN, of the US, of the world, and people who have served their sentences is the socialist thing to do, Minister Catherine King hit the desperate boasted. Thanks for telling us, Catherine. I wasn't talking to you, I was talking to Constable Duffer. Oh, sorry, sorry. Not good enough, like... Pete responded. This shows you're soft on, like, you know, security and border protection. The shadowy Attorney General Macalia cost the workers attacked the government for being caught off guard by the High Court decision. They should have known the legislation was unreliable. She gave her considered invaluable opinion. Uh, but Macalia, the, the law the bench ruled illegal was your law, introduced by your government. And this government must be condemned for not knowing our legislation was utter crap. The government insists the legislation must be passed in this final sitting week. We want to lock all of you up for Christmas. Only a prison cell will do. Big cell, small cell, cold overall cell to prove the baby Jesus loves you. Wonder what the current Attorney General, Mark Dray Security, first thought about a particular visitor in the gallery as the government delivered its long overdue apology to the thalidomide generation. The son of the doctor who first alerted us to the culprit, William McBride, awaiting sentence for exposing true blue Aussie train killer war crimes, Dray Security first having rejected calls to withdraw the charges saying he would not interfere with the legal process. He would let the law take its course. Then intervening to deny David McBride's defence on security grounds, claiming allowing him to defend the charges would damage True Blue Aussie's reputation in the intelligence communities, using intelligence very loosely, not allowing the law to take its course. The socialists are certainly gung-ho about locking up the innocent and throwing away the keys. That's the 
brilliant intelligence, Zion intelligence for instance, that didn't see October 7 coming, that knew hospitals were bristling with war rooms and arsenals. Proven because within minutes, the US OB assured us it knew hospitals were bristling with war rooms and arsenals. The same intelligence that knew just as assuredly that evil Iraq was overflowing with weapons of mass destruction. So David McBride must feel assuaged by the knowledge he would pose a threat to the country and the free world if he defended the heinous crime of exposing war criminals. And well, someone has to pay for those war crimes. Speaking of Iraq, evil, evil Iraq, which had the audacity not to be brimming with weapons of mass destruction, for which the US of made sure it paid, copped its fair punishment, the free world was made a little bit freer this week when the US of bombed and slaughtered Iranians in evil Iraq, who were a bit upset about the US of being there, showing their contempt for the keepers of global democracy. Just wondering, we... Um, we should check out how many Iranian and Iraqi train killers and train killer merchandise are stationed on bases in the U.S. of. Now, in the Children Should Be Not Seen and Not Heard department, brainwashed by terrorists taking to the streets protesting over the slaughter of Palestinian children when they, the protesters, should be in their classrooms learning that those Palestinian children who appear innocent victims are, in fact, terrorists instilling fear and disbelief in the Zion train killers who patrol their non-land and control their lives and terrify the entire Zion population brainwashed by economic vandals, warmest, taking to the streets protesting over alleged climate change, if there is such a thing, when they should be in their classrooms learning that without climate change, if there is, their standard of living will collapse faster than the planet around them is collapsing. And although not exactly a child who should not be not seen and not heard, a 19-year-old, far too young to understand the ways of the world, has made life miserable for a caring employer good enough to provide her with a decent living. OK, OK, Sarah Strybos, the recipient of this Bill of Bang for Your Buck and 1,500 co-workers for Bill of Bang for an affiliate surf, dive and sleaze, weren't quite receiving award rates or receiving penalty rates, but as the fair work true blue Aussie no longer work choices just looked like it commission discovered, it had been operating this way for years under a zombie agreement. The company dismissed her concerns when she raised doubts about whether she was receiving the proper wages and conditions. To exacerbate her ungratefulness for Billabang Thor's generosity, this 19-year-old Tyro upstart spurted, they knew the, the agreement was disadvantaging me and they didn't care, and that was really disappointing. Didn't care. How dare she suggest a caring employer didn't care? Worse, she took it to the fair work true blue Aussie no longer con mission and won. Well, the poor caring employer agreed just before the hearing to increase wages and conditions in line with the award, just the normal wage slave surplus value ripoff, and said, continued operation of the agreement, that is, the zombie agreement, of the agreement would be unfair for the employees covered by it. Obviously, for years, they hadn't been aware of that.
And if only upstart Sarah had been not seen and not heard and underpaid, they would still not be aware of it, because it's beyond belief that they would draw up an agreement they knew was ripping workers off. Clearly another case of inadvertent mistakes of which there are many, as another should-be-not-seen-and-not-heard 20-year-old, Louisa McCarthy, discovered a caring employer called Mint My Desk, was also having a bit of trouble understanding the intricacies of the award and was also forced to increase workers' pay, prompting a youth law true blue Aussie solicitor to observe, the amount of money being recovered would be the tip of the iceberg, an iceberg of inadvertence, proving, as we have noted several times, how complicated must be the awards when the same companies, the same caring employers, can draw up the most complicated contracts, knowing the value, literally, of every word. Overseeing all this, the Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Michelle Bulldust followed her call for doubling the employment rate and uh, reining in wage rises by announcing... Households are coping well, leaving us to ponder what universe she's been living in. As big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital announced the new Deputy Reserve Losses Bank Supremo, a long-term Bank of England economist who has also been seconded to the International Monetary Fund, reflecting calls, nay, screams from the caring business class party economic guru Angus Tailings and the caring business class generally that the socialists not stack the Reserve Bank board with evil union and socialist appointments. Somehow, we don't think there's much risk of that. Over the years, Angus assured us, we maintain the proper balance by ensuring no dangerous threat with the slightest connection to working people got anywhere near the board. Angus backed up Michelle's call that wages are the cause of inflation by declaring the biggest threat to inflation was the government's proposed caring business class relations legislation, which is unnecessary anyway because things are going smoothly by allowing caring employers and lazy avaricious workers to negotiate what's best for them. No longer work choices, just looks like it. Just when we thought that perhaps, maybe, caring employers increasing their prices might have a bit to do with inflation. But no, no. Wise heads like Michelle and Angus have assured us it's all down to the greed, greed, greed of unproductive workers. In the too late, bad luck, sorry you missed it department, two-day conference this week, CFOs, company financial officers, navigating economic uncertainty, it was called. Gripping sessions like organisational agility in a challenging set of market conditions, global headwinds, markets and influences, M&A deals in the capital-raising landscape, emerging greenwashing regulatory risks, oh, and lots of other fun, fun, fun discussions. Wouldn't that have been a day out and a half? Well, two days, and imagine the deep discussions we could have had at the networking over drinks at the end of the first day. We'd fall asleep with the drink in our hand. Finally, as the fossil executive chairing the latest COP That Planet Earth talk fest in Dubai rubs his hands at the thousands of barrels of his favourite product flying delegates in and out, our Minister for Fossils, Chris Bowen, the capital, celebrated the talk fest by announcing gas would be critical to the transmission from gas for years to come. 
a great start to the cop that. Although big supremo Anthony Albinguzi won't be attending, presumably in sympathy with US ob supremo Joe Biden Capital, who's staying home to ensure the Zion slaughter goes on. Anyway, Anthony has been to lots of talk fests recently discussing far more important issues like trained killing, far more important than discussing saving the planet. Or perhaps deep down, Anthony knows it is nothing more than a talk fest being chaired by a fossil. Good morning. The Victorian government is demolishing Melbourne's public housing flats, displacing 10,000 people during a rental crisis, growing homelessness and a wait list of over 120,000 people. The state government is selling off people's homes and breaking communities apart forcing people into unstable, unregulated, privately run community housing is not a solution. Join us for the National Day of Action to Save Public Housing. 1pm, Saturday, December 9th, Victorian State Library. Save Public Housing Collective is a 3CR supporter. Many refugees who still don't have the right to work are feeling the impacts of the cost of living crisis, leaving them unable to put food on the table for their families, let alone afford rent, health care and other essentials. Give to ASRC's end-of-year appeal and help shine a light of hope for refugees and people seeking asylum this festive season. Donate today at asrc.org.au forward slash donate. A3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don, how are you? Well, I'm pretty good, thanks, Annie. G'day to you and all your listeners. And um, uh, it's terrific to be able to have a yarn with you again. Yeah, uh, well, uh, Kevin gave a perfect entree into the your conversation, which is that Bowen has gone off to COP28, but he's also left some news in uh, our inbox, hasn't he? He certainly has. And I think that uh, uh, it's just one example that we will focus on today of a whole list of possible starting points for us to delve deeper into what's going on in the economy and how the government is managing all of the environmental and other problems associated with uh, the contradictions and mess uh, that capitalist economies all over the world, not just in Australia, uh, are in right now. Um, so uh, we are going to concentrate on what uh, has been happening with the government recently uh, with climate change policy. Uh, but I think what I'd like to do today is to frame that within uh, a discussion about the underlying dynamic of the economy of the society, actually, and that is um, the profit dynamic. Um, if we do that, we can then understand better uh, what the opportunities may be, but also what the serious problems uh, there are in what the government is taking to COP28 
and which it's presenting uh, to us in the general population. So what you're saying is how they see the world and what they think is a reasonable table setting for dealing with it. Yes, and um, the big feature point is, of course, this um, uh, uh, climate investment scheme. And uh, we'll go into a little bit more about it in a minute. Um, but the um, but first, let's just set that framework in place about you know what lies beneath the surface, that the reality that lies beneath the surface which if we don't dig into that reality just beneath the surface, then we are ourselves um, uh, wallowing in a mess of idealism that is not very helpful. Yep. Um, So what do you see as the uh, realities? Yeah, profits are the reality, and there are four um, uh, four things that uh, I can talk about I've been doing a bit of research on them, and some of the things are pretty obvious and have been discussed. The first point, starting point to understand the underlying dynamic is the volume or mass of profits. And over the last 20 years, they've been steadily rising and going gangbusters uh, since about 2016. So in terms of the mass of profit available, there is not a problem. Uh, yeah, but of course, with a capitalist system, that doesn't uh, serve because they just, if they make a big profit, they just want more. Well, uh, the problem with maintaining that profit is, of course, profits are a social relationship. They don't exist on their own. They're only made possible by the expenditure of labour power by the workers and the payment of wages. So they exist in a social relationship with wages. That is, import the, the, the class uh, uh, opposites, if you like, and the consequent struggle of, uh, of uh, business owners and workers. So the next thing we look at is what's going on in that relationship between profits and wages. And the first thing is that over the last... There are two points, quick ones. The first is that over the last 20-odd years, there have only been four occasions when the annual increase in wages has been a bit more, not much, than the annual increase in total profits. And there have been no such occasions like that since 2016. In other words, in every year, the annual increase in profits and wages, profits has always been significantly more, except for one year, than uh, than wages. The other part of this is what is called the rate of exploitation. That is, the mass of profits relative to the total wages paid to enable them to be produced and realised. And what we learn here is also, I've talked about it before on this program, is that over the last 20-odd years, there has been a steady rise in the rate of exploitation of workers. And in, and again, it kicks after a little bit of a dip in around 2014-15. It's gone gangbusters again through to about now. So the rate of exploitation is rising. The mass of profits is rising, you'd think, 
that things would be all well and good for business owners, capitalists, uh, to do productive things with those profits. So we come to the third feature of this dynamic, and that is they haven't. <laughs> Australian-based capitalists, both those who are Australian citizens and those who are overseas investors and so on, have been bludging with that growing mass of profits. The rate of investment is low. Uh, you could say that business has been on strike or you could say that they have been bludging. So what we see, and I've looked at various ways of uh, how the Australian Bureau of Statistics presents the data, is a steady decline. Well, it's actually more, worse than steady. It's quite dramatic decline. And again, since about the mid-2010s, it's got worse and worse. So, so, what you're, so what you're saying is that even though we've got climate crisis, the, this plays into the reason for why this capitalist class is just going to continue fiddling while Rome burns by invest, uh, having all the profits from fossil fuels continuing. That, that's, that's where we're heading, yes. Yeah. And that, throw, that has very... If, if you understand the profit dynamic beyond just the massive profits and superficial ideas like greed, if you dig, dig deeper and understand the dynamic, then there is that presents uh, uh, real the need for really deep thinking about what is the role of government to rescue the bludgers, or is the role of government to enhance the capacity of working class communities and their unions to increase the rate of democratic transition to renewables. And we'll come back to that in a moment. So the rate of productive investment, if we left to their own devices, the employers on their record do not have the capacity to provide to, uh, of their own free will, to enable the rapid transition that is needed. The profits relative to total investment have been declining steadily. Now, the question next arises, well, you know, why is that the case? And the reason is that it's not profitable enough. In other words, the return for their investment in capital equipment, the productive equipment that's necessary, and the wages that have to be paid to bring that equipment to life, you put those two things together, the total profit relative to that is falling. And uh, the evidence on that is hard to dig out. But that's what the indicator is. Goodness uh, me. I just remind listeners that they're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're chatting with Don Sutherland, who's dissecting the uh, slothful and verging on criminal behaviour of our business class. The, so, um, the, is the rate of profit falling? The indicators are that it is, 
but it's not. We we need to do a lot more work on the data that's available from the Australian Bureau of Statistics to be able to confirm that. But there is a logic that that is what tends to happen in capitalist societies of their own accord, no matter how governments are managing the system, whether they're using a Keynesian framework or whether they're using a neoliberal framework. When the two overlap these days anyway, but we won't go into that right now. So just to reinforce... I mean, it's the basic principle of capitalism, isn't it? I mean, they they see this as being reasonable behaviour. Yeah, over over a cycle, uh, the rate of profit will at some point tend to fall. And the only answer to that is to increase the rate of exploitation of both people and the environment. That's the only answer that capitalists have to uh, reverse the rate of profit. Uh, and enable then some form of investment that will reproduce the system in a way that works for them. So now we come to Bowen's specific proposal. So keep, keep in mind all of that. The signature new, or it's not a new policy, it's, a, it's actually uh, uh, a, a, an increase in the intensity of an existing policy called the uh, Capacity Investment Scheme. And what this scheme does, is been, so he's increasing it in an announcement that he made last week, and that's one of the signature policies, one of three or four, that he's taking to COP28. Like all of the others, with the possible exception of the National Reconstruction Fund, they're all directed to solving and helping corporations to uh, invest in transition technology uh, and and help them to accept a lower rate of profit for a period of time before they get the rate of profit they want. So the way it works, the way this capacity investment scheme uh, works, is that the government, using uh, income from taxation, underwrites the revenue for projects that are approved on application. So a corporation uh, or uh, some other business makes an application for support under the Capacity Investment Scheme on the basis that they have a projected revenue. And during the years when the revenue is below an agreed floor, the government subsidises that to lift it, thus lifting the profit that is made artificially. And then at some point, when uh, the revenue is above an agreed ceiling, then the company is expected to pay back to the government a portion of the revenue above, a portion. Okay, so that's how it tended to work. The great assumption is that the corporations and other businesses who will apply and be successful in the scheme won't work out a way to rort it. And one of the things we've been learning about how the energy 
production and distribution corporations in Australia that supply electricity into the grid, into the public grid, uh, the way they work is based on some quite mischievous approaches to pricing and so on. And you would have to say that their record is that they will work out at some point how to raw yeah, this because because that's how they operate. That's they see it as being um, their rate and data. But um, it, you know, co communal good isn't really at the heart of their beat. Their beat. But um, uh, it also what you're talking about is really revealing about the way this government sees itself. Uh, um, as a machine, doesn't it? Uh, its ideological framework. It's really quite fascinating. Yes, well, uh, I think uh, I, I've used to describe um, uh, recent Labor parties and, uh, and this Labor government, I think the word neo-Laborism is quite appropriate. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, in other words... They reproduce um, the critical features of neoliberal policies over the years. Uh, the, you know, the religious devotion to markets, um, uh, pri the private the private markets in money, in goods and services, and so on. Um, but they they are they uh, they are more intelligent and confident in how they tackle those. They realise that the way in which the profit system works creates contradictions and so there is a need for government intervention. They realise that uh, if the hot points that emerge from time to time, uh, like uh, the age, what's going on with the aged care um, uh, industry as it is now, uh, is not adequate for the ageing population. So, you know, they intervene to, in some way, fix it up. But it's a, that weird mixture of public, public uh, or government support to enable the continuation of private profit-making within the framework. So it's a neoliberal approach. It's more confident, and it has, I suppose, a human face up to a limit. So I think that's the sort of thing we're seeing when it comes to to this uh, new policy proposal. It's a good example of how using the, a deeper understanding of the profit dynamic, we can get to grips with what it really means. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it uh, it gives the quite starkly the ideological difference between. Uh, their approach and uh, um, community uh, action approach. Yes, yes. Now, there's two points there, I think. Firstly, um, the more um, serious journalists in all of mainstream media have welcomed this um, escalation, if you like, this increase in the commitment to this... Um, uh, capacity investment scheme uh, and is generally favourably disposed to the government's approach to managing, uh, you know, to helping uh, private capital uh, deal with climate change on our behalf. Uh, 
what a contradiction in terms that is. Yeah, the, that's right. So the so the overall mainstream response is supportive. Uh, as you say, it leaves begging the question: of, Well, what do we who are uh, active in the Labor Party or the Greens, to the left of the Labor Party and the Greens, uh, active in the smaller socialist parties. How do we tackle this? I think it's absolutely important in the next three or four months that a genuine socialist platform needs to be developed and synthesised. And it needs to have socialist characteristics. Because the whole logic of government financial support in all of its various forms, whether it's a revenue underwriting scheme that is really about the rate of profit, or whether it's a uh, subsidy scheme, or whatever it happens to be, then that says that no public, no support without comfort, without associated extension of public ownership in whatever appropriate form it might be. Yeah, no, it's fascinating to me. I went, but it's fascinating that the institutions uh, really believe that they're more important than humanity. Yeah, yes. Uh, We've got to, you see, the weakness in our position is that it's so um, uh, it's so broken up. It's there's no synthesis of uh, all the people who. Uh, can switch on to this idea and take it more seriously of constructing... Uh, I I see your point, but it's a non-hierarchical approach. Like, it was one of the things that came out of the, um, what is it, the uh, movement, um, uh, you know, uh, where they took over the stock exchange. Um, I've forgotten even the name of it. Um, it, it, where they people started to have no, the police couldn't find people to talk to though the you know the head honchos because they deliberately didn't have head honchos. Um, yes. uh, I mean, it's a um, there's this is actually a conversation being had with the hierarchical uh, institutions of power. It, well, that's uh, all of this. Uh, this is another feature of neoliberalism. Everything is done at the level of uh, institutions and, and power. So um, I, re- I was reading in one place that you know um, uh, Greg Conday, former national secretary, former secretary of the ACTU, and really one of the one of the major uh, 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 laborist uh, uh, leaders on climate change policy from a government point of view may well be tapped again to lead a government agency in driving uh, this whole scheme forward. That's right, he's been put in charge. You're right, it is institutional. Now, as to what the... The most important thing that we, uh, to the left of the ALP and the Greens, must do is to develop the a program that is based on on public ownership and control. That uh, it may be incremental in some ways and more more dynamic than incremental in others, but it's a program that uh, that says that public ownership must be a part of rapid 
democratic green transition. And then associated with that, the then the development, which it's more complicated and tricky, is the development of a strategy that is democratic and about building democratic power that can neutralise opposition to the expansion of public ownership. Now, I think we get the clues, and this is where um, Colin Long at the Victorian Trades Law Council does such an excellent job with his I mean, the fortnightly newsletter I get, but he go, it goes out much wider, I mean, obviously to other many, many people. But he produces some really good stuff. I just, by the way, for example, he hit upon and found um, some really good data about how the energy corporations that that um, uh, that generate and supply into the and distribute electricity through the grid, what they get up to is an example of the rorting thing. Uh, a mob he found that a mob called the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis showed that the actual profit taken by these corporations was 67% higher than the normal profit. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Right? Yeah. And the reason for that um, uh, is that they were overestimated. Well, the mechanism they used to do that was to overestimate the, overestimate the costs of building, operating, maintaining the network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, actually, that's that's been well known for quite a while. And then yeah. when they have the um, fire seasons and stuff like that, they realise that they haven't done any of the uh, um, maintenance that they keep saying that they're going to do. But anyway, by the by, we have to finish so up. We've come to the end. What Colin does as well, and this is really important, and I recommend this to readers, is that he is a champion of public ownership and articulates the rationale for it. I think the profit dynamic that I've presented reinforces that. And he points us towards the work of the Trade Unions for Energy Democracy and their new report, Beyond Recovery, it's called Beyond Recovery, the Global Green New Deal and Public Ownership of Energy. And their declaration our future is called Our Future is Public Energy Democracy. And you can find out more of that if you Google it, Trade Unions for Energy Democracy. And uh, we need to... There are little glimmerings in Australia of that type of thing. We need to give it a lot more, a lot more oomph and momentum. Thanks very much for talking to us today. You've given us lots to think about, Don. All the very best to everybody. And we should follow through and look at how that profit dynamic... Uh, relates to some of that long list of other things, like anything from the annual wage review to uh, the Reserve Bank's contradictory management of interest rates, the cost of living, um, AI, dare I say, the stage three tax cuts. So if you use that dynamic, you can understand those things in a more profound way than what we, than the idealistic approach uh, that is... Uh, the product of uh, just looking at the surface of things. Well, we'll have you in for the last live program we have before the uh, Christmas season begins, and we'll have this conversation, I think. Well, that will be... Look forward to it. Okay. Talk to you then. Bye. Yeah, and that was Don Sutherland. Yeah, lots of things to think about. We uh, heard from the anti-Zionist Jewish trans author, Nevo... 
Sisin this morning from last week's uh, rally for Palestine. Don't forget, uh, steps 12pm tomorrow, uh, State Library, the bombing continues. Uh, we heard from Alex Etling, knock the top off a people's history of alcohol in Adelaide, in Australia. <laughs> Adelaide, in Australia. Uh, it's uh, going to be launched at the John Curtin, 4pm uh, next Saturday. Um in uh, Carlton, uh, Ian uh, Crittenden and Rachel Gersip, uh, from uh, told us about this fabulous series called Plausible Deniability. You can find it on Facebook. Plausible Deniability will get you there. This is the week that was and then Don Sutherland. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and we'll go out with Turn Up Your Radio by Joy Bell and the Travolta's. I don't want you at home anymore I want to go to work so I don't have to be poor I want to gig with my band on the Portland shore listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.